0: In this episode, we're chatting with education consultant Dr Claire Warden about the importance of nature connection, nature pedagogy, and her kindergarten, Ochlon Nature Kindergarten in Scotland.
1: Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education, and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family.
0: Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled.
1: We're your hosts Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. Today, we're chatting with educational consultant and passionate nature pedagogy expert, Dr. Claire Warden. Now, if you've worked in early childcare in Australia, then you will know exactly who Claire Warden is and will have quite likely partaken in one of her prolific offerings of educator training. But for those who are not in the early education sphere, Claire is the founder of her own education platform, Mind Stretches, her own international consultancy business named after herself, her charity, Living Classrooms, and she is also the president of the new International Association of Nature Pedagogy. She is a busy woman. Claire is also the author of over 25 books and materials relating to the early years methodology, including her well-known talking and thinking floor books, which are just fabulous additions to your early childcare documentation process if you haven't heard of them. And the reason they're so fabulous is because they support consultation and democracy in early education, aka they give children the freedom to choose. She's also published Nurture Through Nature, which explores working with children under three outside. Claire is also still really closely involved with her own nature kindergarten, Ochlon Nature Kindergarten, which is one of the first nature kindergartens in Scotland. Now, this outdoor nursery works with children from two to six years old, and they spend up to 90% of their time outside. Couldn't we all learn a thing or two from that? But before we start, don't forget to download our free nature scavenger hunt to inspire your children to get outdoors. You can find it at wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables. But now let's get chatting to Claire. Welcome to the show, Claire. How is the weather in Scotland today?
1: Oh, it's grand, actually. Today we have, um, it's colder, obviously, we're moving into our autumn and winter, but so it's all of a little bit damp in scotland um but actually it's a (laughs) funny day today sunny and damp is what i would say Oh,
0: beautiful. Well, we need to get you back out there. So let's get this podcast started. So what we'd first like to hear from you is if if you can just give us a little, and I don't know how we're going to keep this short, Claire, but a little bit of a, a summary of where and how you've ended up in, I guess, I don't like calling it the industry, but the purpose that you've ended up with in nature pedagogy.
1: Sure. I think for me, you know, it's about accepting the fact that we've all got very different journeys through our lives. And One of the things that I've come to realize is that there are these rifts or shifts in our lives, which actually cause us to reset and rethink. And I think for me, my passion has always been to work with children. So my roots, my journey went into teaching. I was working in the south of England um, a very challenging environment. And then I started to realize the benefits of outdoors and the use of floor books And then um, started working in an advisory capacity, end up lecturing at the university, moved to Scotland, uh, lecturing at university, and then you're just out on the road. And one of the amazing things for me is there's this guy called Caputo, and he talks about these rifts, these shifts. And one of them, but sadly, when my father died, it makes you reset everything about your life, rethink, doesn't it? And then another one happened, actually, when I was out in the northern desert in Western Australia. In a wonderful um, Aboriginal community um, with some lovely people. And, and it gave me a real space. I and mean, it was a very isolated community to really rethink where my passion was going. And um, so that focused me. And that's when I really started to push forward in my PhD. So, yeah, that was the real stimulus, I suppose. Beautiful. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you did in your PhD? Sure. So, um, one of the things that happens, I think, is that um, when we're involved in education, I think it's almost a human trait. We start to really want to seek an identity. And then the challenge with identity is that it makes silos and separations. And so I was beginning to hear people talk about, well, I do forest school or I do bush kindy and you don't, and I do nature kindy and you don't. And so there became this real hierarchy of almost the purity of, well, you know, I don't use any shelter and I'm out in the forest for all the time. I'm like, this isn't about survivor child. There's not a competition (laughs) to how extreme we can be with young children. So I began then to look at all of those different models that exist around the world, and there are thousands, millions probably. And I then started to analyse what sits beneath those models as a set of values and beliefs and principles And those then became, if you like, my creation and theorization of nature pedagogy. Mm -hmm. My nature pedagogy, if you like, was very land-based and very place-based in terms of emerging from Scotland. So um, my theory was around what is nature pedagogy? It's the art of being with nature inside, outside and beyond. But inside, outside, beyond, most people who know me will know that's the phrase I give for inside a building, outside in your outdoor play area and beyond beyond the gate into wilder spaces but actually in my thesis it became um, had a secondary meaning and the secondary interpretation was one of inside self in terms of your soul who you are your identity and outside in terms of our relationship to others both the living and the non-living and then it became about beyond as a global society So. One of the the fascinating things about it is that when you get involved in outdoor learning, you begin to see many people come with a whole variety of different lenses. And on one lens, one view is very much environmental education. Another might be sustainability. Maybe it's health and well-being, holistic learning. I mean, there's millions. What I wanted to try to do was um, to challenge, well, you know, typical me, I wanted to challenge (laughs) establishment of what a PhD actually was in terms of what I would refer to as the Western paradigm of what learning is. And so um, my tutor saying to me, you know, you do realise, Claire, that you're trying to get a PhD from this university, because actually what you're trying to do is to say that established education is very narrow reductionist. <laughs> so um, it's very arts-based research. Um, we went out at Ochlone, which is the Nature Kindergarten here in Scotland. And we went with the team there and um, we gathered local plants and took the dyes from them and then dyed wool that we'd also collected locally. We carded it, we spun it, we made it into beautiful colours of the land, um, into this wool and wove a plaid, which is very traditionally Scottish. Um, The plaid, really, as we're making the plaid, that the important part of doing that is that your brain is very actively involved in processing your hands, but it's also then released to think and to feel more comfortable, which is exactly what we do with young children. And so as we were having um, and the opportunity to weave the plaid, you found that actually the conversation from the practitioners, the educators, was really rich. And so from that process right the way through that, we ended up making a complete circle of uh, tartan, a plaid, which really represented our values and principles. At the end of it, so mm, I loved. I missed my PhD when it finished. Um, mm. Nobody warned me about that. That there would almost be a grieving process to the end of that.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a, what a beautiful process. It's and it really is. I, th- I think you've nailed it there in that a the ripple effects are far and wide, reaching but they do tie us together when we're in nature and really deep bonding too.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens, you know, when I'm working with different countries, which is a delight, don't get me wrong, but, but you almost now I can see the process of, well, the first step is, you know, to give a million ideas of, you know, this is what you do with a twig. And I'm like, okay, so we we give the ideas out and that's, that's about the practitioners receiving information really. And then you begin to see the evolution then of the need for policy and um, understanding of a joint dialogue about what the pedagogy actually is, which is where I kind of tend to come in, in terms of understanding nature pedagogy. Um, and then you get to that point where there's a groundswell. And so in Scotland, you know, Ochlone was the first little thing, first little um, nature kindergarten, or rather Whistlebrae was the first nature kindergarten. And then Ochlone came very quickly on the back of it. And now, you know, we've got many, many just springing up all over the place. And and so that's really important, I think, to to see the work that I'm doing and you're doing. And all of us who are in this work is really that, you know, you're the educational entrepreneurs of what we do. And so it's important that we have people who push boundaries because otherwise things would stay the same. And, and you know, the society is changing and we need to adapt to that.
0: Yes. Here, here. Uh, here's to the... We got called rebels back in our very early days, and it didn't sit with me <laughs> because I don't feel like one. I definitely, I would definitely have put myself in the good girl box. But the longer <laughs> I'm in in this job and this business, is the more I realize that while I wouldn't call myself a rebel, we we are definitely, as you are, and have always done, is is push those boundaries because we can see the cause,
1: we can see the results of what happens when children are outdoors. One of the things I think that is interesting about being classed as that provocateur, you know, is that sense of you you don't identify with that role, you identify for a sense of justice. Yes. And if your sense of justice is about children's rights, that they have a right to be with the natural world and they have a right to be consulted and have their voice heard then really, that's what drives us. It's not about being a rebel. No. It's really difficult when some people just can't see it. And I remember when Whistlebray opened here, and that was 13, 14 years ago now. My conversation with the licensing at the time was very much around, or oh, you know, could you remove all the sticks? And I was like, <laughs> you know, could you hold children all the time? You know, so so crazy questions now. It's, really interesting when you look at the questions that you're asked it, along that journey because sometimes the, that experience of being asked those questions is almost quite startling because you can't quite understand why they're asking such inane things but it's where they are on that learning journey and I think the important part is to hold on to the principles and values that you've got um, because it will change and 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 if you make a little bit of a ripple, like they say, you know, you throw the pebble in the pool and then the ripples go on and on and on. We
0: had someone very shortly after we were termed rebels, call us children's rights advocates, and suddenly we're like, it's one and the same thing, exactly as you were just saying, that it's just painted with a different lens. And we're eternal optimists and idealists. As you well know, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. Yeah, exactly that. It's that focus on children's rights that keeps you going, really, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think, you know, one of the things Rich and I were talking about, Richard Louvre, was about the idea of, of really campaigning to get the UN um, to include a right to the natural world within their scheduling. Because I think they have play and they have consultation, but actually I think we're at a point when we really need to get the natural world in there. So there's a whole group of people who, pre-pandemic certainly, uh, were trying to campaign to get the right to nature into those children. Add us to that list, Claire, we're in. <laughs> okay,
0: so we'll do, we'll do. <laughs> so let's have a chat, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so please correct me. Is it, How do we pronounce this? oklon?
1: That's almost. Oclone, yeah. So Oclone. Oclone. So, Ochlone. The Auckland. Scottish, yeah, I love exactly.
0: it. So, tell us a bit more about your kindy, Ochlone. Yeah,
1: right. So, um, <laughs> And you can correct me publicly, that's absolutely, yeah. <laughs> one of the things, I suppose, about, you know, being an educational entrepreneur is that you have a choice to sit with a status quo or to challenge it in all sorts of different ways, And so it it almost, the whole journey started almost really by accident. It was a friend who was wanting to give up a little Montessori nursery, actually, um, called Whistlebrain. And my son had gone to Whistlebrain. It was amazing. It was right on the edge of a woodland. And I said, well, at the time I'd left the university, I'd finished lecturing. And I said, you know, I think we need a place where people can come and visit and experience this. So they embrace the fact that it's not chaos in a wood. It's actually Got a lot of intentionality about it. So Whistlebrae was born, which really was a little stone gatehouse, very old, very small. Um, and so it wasn't big enough for us to be in all the time. So we spent most of our time in the forest. So that was many, many years ago now. And then sadly, there was a change of land use tenure. So we had to get out of there and serendipitously, the Laird's daughter from the land that that we're now on um, had shown some interest in it. And so she literally phoned me up and said, we've got this little old gatehouse. I know you're at Whistlebrae. Would you like another one? And we were like, oh, right. Well, actually, we're coming out of here. So Occlone Lodge, which is the name of the little gatehouse, um, became our new home. So we have a small gatehouse, a stone building, the cottage, we call it. And then we have um, an outdoor kinder kitchen, which is a very big outdoor shelter. And we have a little cabin scattered in the woods and things like that. So it really was a place where we could manifest some of our principles, some of our ideas, people could come and visit. And now it provides support for children from two, regularly, it supports children from two years old to six years old. We actually, because of the pandemic, it's been a really interesting process because the whole world went into lockdown in March, and myself and the head, Mona, said, "You know, what are we going to do? We could stay open as a hub for the children of key workers." And so she and I essentially decided to do that. So I went back to working in the nursery full time. Oh, uh, well, wow. came something called the nature school actually, and so we built this nature school, which then, of course, went up to eleven years old, which was joyous. So we went from being an early years environment to being a nature school. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And the more we did that, the more we realised that there was a place for virtual nature school. And then the government, the Scottish government, got hold of the idea around it and asked if we would run it as a wider project for everybody in Scotland. So we did. And now it's international. So it's it's amazing how from this little place, you know, from this innovation – has grown this this worldwide international virtual nature school. It's really quite fascinating.
0: Uh, and doesn't it just tell you that it's time? To me, it's been happening and happening, you know, the past decade, 20 years, you know, longer in some countries, but society, I feel, desperately needs it. And with the pandemic, like you said, a lot of people were wondering whether it would cross over virtually virtually. But I think we're at that point where children so desperately need to be in nature that wherever we could get it, as long as we had the guidance, it was still beneficial, more than just beneficial.
1: You know, and I think one of the things, you know, the research does back up, that just looking on the natural world, whether it's a photograph on your wall or a view out of a window, we've got the research to say that even that has a really positive effect on young children and and the adults with them. So, you know not just about being out in it. So we can hold on to so many different ways of engaging with the natural world that actually we can blend together the best. We can embrace technology, like you and I having this chat, doing virtual nature school right the way through to being out in the forest. And I think ideally it would be wonderful if all children could have the physical experience of being out in the natural world. But for some children, whether they're in war torn environments, whether I'm working in spaces where is a real challenge in terms of them being able to have the freedom they want. At least when you're working in the virtual world, you can give them some sense of insight into it.
0: Can you then tell us what, a, and I know this is a bit of a how long is a piece of string, but what a typical day might look like for a child that attends Oclone?
1: Sure. Um So they, the children calmly dropped off, sadly now that they get dropped off on the outside of the gates, but Normally, they get dropped off um, with their parent um, or carer at about 8.30. It can be earlier than that sometimes. They get dropped off outside, so they're already in their outdoor clothing. And then by about 10 o'clock, the children have had their um, something to eat. They've packed their rucksacks. And then they're ready to decide where their journey is going to go, what adventure they're going to go on that day. And from that point, they can choose to go to the dark woods or up into the deciduous forest that firehouse or to the dragon's tree and and so what's been beautiful about that consultation process is how children have named landmarks you know the tree with the window it's the dragon tree it's all the rest so it's been fascinating to help children do some more work around their own mapping and then we tend to be out then and so the we have three different locations that have fires in that we can actually cook on so um the firehouse, if it's the it's of weather like we've been having recently in Scotland—heavy rain, very cold. The fire will go on for both emotional comfort, but also for the comfort of warmth. And then we'll cook soup on white bread or things. And then um, they come back. Usually, they'll be back to base camp, um, back to the cottage by about two thirty, three o'clock. And then some children going at three o'clock onwards so there tends to be more experiences within the actual grounds of the cottage from about three o'clock to six o'clock when they finally go home some of them so there is potential obviously because of the work we do around location we we have inside experiences which are in the cottage and then we have outside landscape which was designed by children and then we have the beyond space which is the forest so we have all three physical locations very close together, which works beautifully for us.
0: I love when you were talking about the, the dragon's den and the tree with the window, it's that naming just gives them that sense of ownership and custodianship, doesn't it? That environmental stewardship. And it's, it's just so important for children to have a space to go in nature where they can connect. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that?
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the books, and most people, I don't know if they've seen it, has been The um, the Handbook of Outdoor Play. I don't know if you've read that book by Tim Waller. He was the editor of it. It's a bit of a tome. Um, but one of the things in there when we were writing those chapters was around, you know, what does the research actually say? Because there's all sorts of misconceptions about, you know, the natural world being the panacea for all. And and it's a shame that we, we can't say that is true, actually, in terms of the research we've got. We know that it gives a place of difference. We know that it allows children to engage physically. So we've done all sorts of research around the physicality and the benefits of physicality in terms of lung and heart capacity. We know we've got a lot of research around the fact that there could well be a link to an intellectual stimulation. We know this in terms of how it's measured is a bit of a challenge, but we know that it's a stimulus for thinking, absolutely. And then we also... Really, and that's where the frontier of research is, where my PhD sits, is around this understanding of the unobservable. And actually, for me, sometimes it's the unobservable benefits of being with the natural world. So your sense of peace, your sense of connect, your ability to self-regulate more effectively. These aren't things that you could ever test in a very didactic way. So we have to use very creative research methods to be able to say, you know it's about emotion it's about spirit um there are benefits for the whole child and for not just children but obviously for human beings we are ecological in that we need to see ourselves as part and parcel integrated to the natural world whereas there are still some people who are you know ego logical which means that they see humans as being at the top of the pyramid they see them as being dominant and unaffected by the natural world and If there is a benefit of the pandemic, it's been to shift people's thinking, I think, away from the idea that humans are all supreme to a place of humility where we've got to accept that the smallest virus has brought us down. And that, as a society, as a culture, may be a good thing. Yeah, 100%
0: agree. We have um, quite a few of our programs where parents must attend currently and they often sign up for their children and then they start coming back for themselves because often they say, I can't put my finger on what it is, but after I've been here, I'm calmer, I treat my children better, I'm a better parent, and I just have a sense
1: exactly like you said, I leave with a sense of peace. You can't put a figure on that. No, and the challenge for us, I think, you know, when you're trying to convince establishment about changing their paradigm is that people say well indoors I can test this and this and this actually any research that says that children learn better indoors at all but the challenge we face is that a lot of the research that you read it's changing a little bit now but certainly some of the research was was done by people who wanted to test It was very statistical and therefore you can do that if you sit a child down in a chair and do it the challenge for us is that we're, we're looking at um not an ephemeral side of research, but we're looking at an intangibility, a phenomena. Well, how do you test and research a phenomena? You can only do it through things like arts-based research, dialogue. So we're at a disadvantage at the moment um, because when you're looking at the benefits of nature as being about peace, and then someone comes along with a research paper that says, actually, I can prove that by sitting a child down with a book at a table, I can increase their reading age by three years or whatever. <laughs> you are competing against in some people's minds and, and that becomes you know impossible. So, again, I think, you know, this pandemic, because it has been a global pandemic, has actually sent ripples around people to say, you know, I didn't realize the price of freedom I have understood my need to be with friends, my my desire to be in the park. I haven't realised how important that was to me until it was taken away. So yeah, let's hope.
0: Uh, let's hope. Uh, look, since we've opened up from lockdown, our business has just gone gangbusters. It's ridiculous in, in the best way. And it gives me hope that hopefully this pandemic has brought about positive lasting change. So we shall see. More, more kids we get outdoors uh, can only mean
1: better things for us all. Absolutely, absolutely. Now
0: tell us a bit about your Mind Stretchers Academy.
1: Sure. Mind Stretchers was a name I gave to um, actually a booklet I wrote for parents when I was 30-something years ago now. <laughs> and, um, Designed to be, you know, here's a few things you can do at home to entertain your child, really, if I'm honest about it. Mm. Um, And then what happened is it evolved into being um, a training consultancy. And about four or five years ago, because I'm traveling around the world, it, it meant that I was struggling to keep up, really, which You know, it was a lovely position to be in, but I needed a different way to keep connected to people. So we set up the Mind Stretchers Academy. And in there now, we've written a lot of online courses. We've got talks, we've got podcasts, we've got all sorts of different things, articles, downloads, you name it, we've got it on there. But it's become the hub. It's become the place where if people want to find stuff about floor books or nature pedagogy, they can go there and engage really in a bit more in-depth learning. So light-touch courses, just me chatting, but also um, more in-depth courses that really push you. So in Australia, we've been doing quite a lot of work around something called Journeys into Nature, and Journeys into Nature was a 40-module course. I mean, it was huge. So people can now do courses like that online, and it just opens it up internationally. Yeah, the books are all on there. You were laughing at the beginning. I forget how many (laughs) books
0: Claire said something along the lines of 25, I think, probably more. And I said, when do you sleep, Claire?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just, yeah, my answer is I'm getting old. But I think, you know, (laughs) is that as an author of books is that they become your like um, your story. And Mm. I I look back now, uh, there's a book I wrote called The Right to Be Me. Which was about um the UN it was based on the UN Convention rights of the child, but it was linked to the rights of children to have outdoors. And I loved that little book. But when I look back on it, it was it was designed to be used with parents and families I was working with at the time. So it's a very simple graphic text, you know, and, and now I look at that compared to the book that we're writing um, with Paddy Mellon around Beyond the Gate, you know, which is much more complicated, much more <laughs> perhaps. So, yeah, it, it's lovely to go back and look at them. Sometimes they make you cringe. <laughs> Never.
0: So, uh, you know, business owner to business owner, what's your favourite part of your business and then what's your least favourite part as well?
1: Oh, my favourite part is is when actually you meet people. It's got to be the people because, you know, I've got friends and colleagues now around the world and, and. You know, you you connect to people, so that gives you such an emotional support that you're doing the right thing. I mean, you said that, Nikki. It's like when someone comes up and actually says, "Oh, thanks." Yeah. You know, um, at the best moment of my life, I think was I got a letter from David Attenborough just a few days ago, <laughs> and David Attenborough has been my hero for my whole life. And you know, as a child, I watched his programs and. And for him to write me a letter to say thank you, I was just, yeah, very emotional about the whole process. So, oh so that's good. I'm amazing. emotional for you, Claire. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it was a good moment, good moment. And then, you know, the worst part of it is, is that you are um you're trying to do two things. You're trying to make a sustainable model of education and work, business, if you like. Mm that is sustainable and and so sometimes I think people have this idea that because we work in nature you know it's wrong that we charge money for a course or you know whatever and I'm like but that, that how you use that money that's the key because if you use that and you buy yourself a sports car great well that, that I would say you're about commercialization I'm not into that mm-hmm. but if you that money to give somebody the chance to enter a program they couldn't have normally done or if you plant trees which is what we do with ours we have a forest area that we're planting trees we're giving money to our charity which is living classrooms so one of the things I realized early on was many people working and have a who have businesses or anything in early education connected to nature were grant-based and I was like but as soon as that grant finishes and I'd experienced that in the early part of my career working with teenage mothers. They had a grant to go and work with the teenage mums and then they were surprised that the teenage mums wouldn't engage because they knew that this thing was going to last three weeks and then the grant was going to run out and then it was all going to be over. So why bother coming to the coffee room?
0: <laughs> yeah, you, can't, you cannot survive on grants alone. It's you just can't. flat you out can't. not feasible.
1: Absolutely. And so therefore, for us, our, the business model we have is Mind Stretchers sells the books and the courses, and then the profit from that goes into our Living Classrooms charity, our kick. That is the one that works with ex-prison offenders, teenage mums, anybody who needs us, marginalised communities. So it's the Living Classrooms kick that ran the virtual nature school during the pandemic. So you know there is a model here that is sustainable, and it and it is making ethical decisions. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, that's that's the bit for me, I think, is about finding a business model that is sustainable, not one that is, you know, going to, I don't know, allow you to buy a sports car or something. That's, that's yeah. just set up for me. That's not what excites me at all. Uh, it's, it's making a difference that makes me tick.
0: Yeah, but we're exactly the same, and while yeah, and we've gone through the the whole roller coaster of uh, do we become a not for profit? No, that's not feasible. That's not going to give people jobs, and it's not going to support that circular economy of giving people jobs that are then investing their own pay, their own money into those more ethical and sustainable
1: choices as well. So again, it's that ripple effect. Yeah, you know, when you're saying you know what's the hardest bit? That's the hardest bit. The hardest bit is feeling that responsibility for the people that work with you yes Um, and there is no getting away from that that if you know if you are trying to do something and you haven't made enough money then they've still got to be paid that's your duty of care to the people that work with you so so that pressure is the one that um, I found the hardest at the beginning Um, and even when the pandemic hit you know your first response I think as a good leader is to think about the care of the people that work with you
0: oh that was Um, terrifying wasn't it that responsibility
1: Oh, that's the hardest bit, you know, I think. It's both building and terrifying all at the same time. Yeah. And I get, I don't know about you, but I get way too emotionally affected by that process. I do. Oh, yeah, um, same. And, and it is, you know, you start a business like this and you
0: attract those people that do become like family because they are, you know, they're world changers and, and they're advocates and they have big hearts and I guess so do we. So. <laughs> Exactly.
1: And that's why they've been drawn to you, you know, for that very same reason. Mm,
0: It's a beautiful family to be a part of, but yes, the responsibility can weigh sometimes.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, it has been lovely chatting, Claire. Let's jump over to our rapid fire questions. I can't believe we've already just about wrapped up. I could chat to you for weeks. So (laughs) let's get going here. What is your favorite book of all time or what's currently on your bookshelf? All
1: right. So my favorite book of all time, which is going to make people laugh, was a little book that I read. Um it's called The Little Grey Men by an artist uh, an author called BB. And um this little book was about three gnomes really, or three spirits or trolls or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call them. But they were a bit like the borrowers, but they were (laughs) set within a forest. And so they made boats out of acorn cups and things like that. No, I don't read that now, right enough, but (laughs) but as a child, that was my favourite book. And you know, my mum, bless her, kept that book and Little House on the Prairie books, which are also a passion mm. when I was growing up, and um, she kept them wrapped up and, and gave them to me. You know, some years ago now, but but so that's my favourite book actually because it was such a trigger for me as a young child.
0: Yeah. Mm. There are those books that just just resonate with you throughout your life, aren't there? It's it's pretty special. Yeah.
1: You know, I read it back now and it's a bit lame, but at the time.
0: <laughs> it doesn't matter time, though, does it? <laughs> oh. uh, all right. Where do you go or what do you do when you've had a rough day and need to reset?
1: It's the dogs. So I have three dogs, three Labradors, and um, and I'm lucky to live in um, some beautiful part of the Scottish countryside. So it's walking. It's going out in the forest and there's this one area about five minutes from my house. Which is like an old avenue of ancient, ancient beech trees. It's actually on a ley line next to an ancient burial ground. Well. Sounds very, very, um, But but when you walk that route, and it's completely straight. I mean, it's man created, but there's such a sense of gravitas from those ancient, ancient trees that it uh, has a, a little brook that runs runs alongside. It just places you into the idea that. We're almost insignificant in terms of the moment of time that our lifespans cover. You know, these ancient trees have seen so much come and go that it's okay, and it's going to be okay. You know, in mm-hmm. the future,
0: isn't that such a nice way? It's 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 very Buddha, actually, isn't it? Looking like that, and it's yeah, everything and nothing, aren't we? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And last one, if you could change one thing, we'll try and limit you to one thing, because I know there could be a few here about the education system, what would it be?
1: Hmm. I think it would be to be a little bit more um innovative and open hmm. to possibility. I think it's dragged back by too much ancient thinking and where you find countries who are more innovative and who are embracing things like you know consultative planning and responsive thinking and and are really looking at what children need as opposed to the traditions <laughs> of Western idea of education um, they they are the ones who've actually got children like Finland who've got children with a really high reading age but they've got children who are just balanced and I think we need Change the lens a bit in education to look at what we need to become people who can flourish, not just survive on a planet, but to flourish.
0: It's one of our favourite sayings. We don't want children to be fine. We want them to thrive. And, and we can't just thrive if we're focused on academics. We, Like you said, we need to focus on that holistic well-being
1: absolutely
0: absolutely Mm. well well, thank you so much for joining us Claire particularly I know it's you know time zones and busy days and all of that jazz thank you for squeezing us in we really appreciate it you've been on my hit list for a long time so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today We really hope you enjoyed hearing from Claire today. Personally, I know when we were chatting about our favourite parts of running a nature play business, it really resonated with me when Claire said that her favourite thing is the people. Over and over again, Vicky and I are inspired and embraced, encouraged and held as we navigate what it means to be pushing for change in the education system. It can be exhausting work, but it's people like Claire and the many, many incredible guests that we have that keep us going and doing this work that is so important for kids. So we hope that this podcast or any of the others inspires or helps re-inspire you to help get more children out in nature, whether that's your own children as parents or children and students in your care as educators. Like Claire said, the benefits of being outdoors in nature are many, yet we're still yet to fully understand all of the immeasurable benefits. But we know it, we see it, and we feel it every single day in our work. And so our one wish is that all children, no matter where they live, no matter their economic status, that they get to feel this too. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, why not flick us a review on your podcast player of choice or share the artwork on Instagram with what resonated with you this week? We love sharing them and we really love getting the feedback. Honestly, it's what gets us here at 9.30 at night doing podcasts with people from across the world. It it really just floats our boat. And the more people that hear from people like Claire and our other incredible guests, the more children will get outside reaping those benefits of being connected with nature. And let's be honest, that can only be good for them and the planet, particularly in this climate. Until next week, stay wild.